2: This is New Books in Intellectual History. I'm Ray Haberski, one of the hosts. And today uh, I did an interview with Molly Worthen, who is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's the author most recently of Apostles of Reason, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism. Uh, This book takes a look at 70 years of evangelical history in the United States, but primarily is concerned with the ideas that move different debates, uh, everything from Carl Henry and uh, Christianity today up through the culture wars and uh, Francis Schaeffer and folks like that. Uh, Molly Worthen is a really fine writer. The book is – Very well written, very well organized, has a lot of uh, colorful characters. But most importantly, I think it is a model for how to do uh, very good intellectual and religious history and how to integrate those two types of of history with biography. So this is a good interview. Molly Worthen had a lot of fascinating things to say. And I think uh, folks who are interested in sort of contemporary or more recent American history will find her book uh, well worth the read. Hello, Molly Worthen. Welcome to New Books Intellectual History. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on this this show, on this uh, podcast. The book that we're going to be talking about today is Apostles of Reason, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism. Uh, It is, however, your second book. So I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about uh, your background, um, perhaps where you come from, um, your academic background, and the first book that you wrote.
1: I'm happy to. I grew up in the Midwest outside of Chicago, and my first book has its origins in my college experience. It's a somewhat unconventional book that I stumbled into. I took a course as an undergraduate at Yale University uh, with uh, John Gass, who's a historian of Cold War history. And the course was called The Art of Biography. Uh And for this course, I wrote a final paper that was a biographical essay about a professor that I had had as an undergraduate who fascinated me and many of my peers, because he had come only lately to academe. He had spent 40 years as a Foreign Service officer, Mm -hmm. and no one has heard of him. His name is Charles Hill. He was kind of a behind-the-scenes guy, but behind the scenes at very interesting points in the history of American foreign policy. He was a speechwriter for Henry Kissinger. He served in the Saigon Embassy at the tail end of uh, America's involvement there. Uh, During the Reagan administration, he was and in command in the State Department, and was a voluminous note-taker. He took contemporaneous notes during his time in, this, in at the highest level of the State Department of every conversation that he witnessed or heard. Wow. He produced about 25,000 pages of notes, verbatim notes, uh, covering only six years. Oh my but he had God. notes also from from earlier parts of his career as well. And no one had ever seen these because they were confiscated by the FBI in the course <laughs> of the Iran-Contra investigation. But Charlie had made contraband photocopies oh, and my. I convinced him to let me use them. Yeah. And so this project snowballed and I ended up pursuing it as my senior essay in my last year of, of college and yeah. then as as a, a book project. And it, it kind of expanded and became not only a window in to American foreign policy through the experience of this individual, but also a very personal biography. I I got to know his ex-wife, and I I wrote about the the conflicts between personal and professional demands, and also about my own experience as a student of his who had begun really admiring him, and then uh, come to see that he was a human who had made poor decisions and done things I didn't approve of. Meeting someone's ex-wife has a way of showing you that they have feet of clay. And then coming full circle to a point where I really I really do still admire a lot of what he did. And for me, the project was a bit of a detour intellectually. I had started out my college education with interest in religious history and okay. then taken this detour in diplomatic history. And when it came time to to um, consider what I wanted to do next, I returned to, to the study of religion. But I do see some continuities between that first book, which is called The Man on Whom Nothing Was Lost, and and my my most recent book, in that both are, broadly speaking, about the role that ideas play in people's lives and the appeal of a comprehensive worldview, a grand strategy. Yeah. And and secondly, I would add that both are about education, Uh and they're about what's involved in critical inquiry and how we teach that process, how we negotiate it, and the appeal of a very powerful intellectual authority, but also the hazards yeah. Of of, uh, of of navigating that and and so you know in retrospect I see that even though it seems as if my my most recent book which is about American evangelicals is a total departure that right. in some ways I've been pursuing the same questions
2: I think it's I think it's fascinating because unlike I think most uh, history majors in an in undergraduate institution you actually came to a history of uh, of of biography uh, you know, a theoretical view on history I think a lot faster, a lot sooner than than most do, which is really interesting. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: It's funny. I, I don't know that I was aware of it. I was not very thoughtful about my method, uh, certainly as an undergraduate, and probably only came to it late as I was pressed to consider these questions more seriously in my graduate education, but I certainly think, like all students, I imbibe the assumptions of my teachers, and uh, John Gaddis was certainly a big influence on me, and while he's um, interested in, in questions that are, are not so much the questions I'm, I take up now in my, my more recent scholarship, yeah. he takes he's someone who takes ideas very seriously and seeks to really occupy the minds of his subjects. Yeah. Uh, he, for me, Uh, modeled that core historian's goal of radical empathy, Mm -hmm. of setting aside your own assumptions and and really trying to understand the world from your subject's point of view. And and certainly, um, I learned to focus on that long before I I was consciously reading um, any theoretical literature or thinking about methodologies. And I'm grateful for that, because I think that basic project of empathy is really the most important thing. It's certainly the, the key task that I try to communicate to my students, and it's, what i try to do in all my scholarship
2: that's yeah, great stuff I, I mean the idea of biography becomes it is is quite central to this book on evangelicals um but i'm also interested in, in sort of because I, I almost get a sense reading that book that like your first, first book on, on charles hill uh, you do have a relationship with the people that you study; that they're that you have um, that you feel their personality in some way. And I'm I'm curious about this because I think one of the most difficult things to teach uh, students is that while we can read people in journals and in their books and even you know uh, get a sense of them f- from oral interviews they are they are full people with with problems and concerns and uh you know they they have families can you can you tell us a bit more about uh in, in regard to charles hill how you developed the sort of relationship with him as as a historical subject who was fully formed after a while to you
1: writing about charlie was uh, a, a task Unlike anything I had certainly done before and have done since, and presented unique challenges as far as as writing an objective biography, first of all, I was starting out as his student, um, and so in some regard, I was at a, a disadvantage. I was young I mean, when I first began peppering him with questions and reading his notes, I was gosh, I guess I would have been twenty yeah and i didn't I didn't have a lot of reasoning, yeah. But he, you know, he is a controversial teacher at Yale, to be honest. But in this regard, in regard to my project, I think he saw its potential before I did. And he was very professional about it from the beginning and made it clear to me that he would submit to as many hours of interview as I wanted. Eventually, um, he gave me full access to really every scrap of paper he'd, he'd ever produced, which he has deposited in an archive out at the Hoover Institution at, at Stanford. Right, And he said that he would he would simply follow my lead and and there was no question that was off limits in fact he seemed uh, he strikes me as a person who was simply born without the gene for embarrassment That's and amazing. truly yeah was willing to talk very candidly about his relationship with his ex-wife, for example, mm-hmm. in a way that put me in something of a bind as a historian writing about people who are largely still alive. Yeah. Um, I found very graphic notes that he had kept about uh, the final um, final months of his first marriage uh, that, you know, about, about personal fights and really yeah. quite terrible stuff. and. It was really a dilemma for me: how much of this to include, if any, how how to Gotta handle it. it. Because, yeah. right, uh, and you know, I, I tried to to uh, reach a, a happy medium in mm-hmm. which I included enough, as I believe, was necessary to tell the story without being salacious. Yeah. Um, but certainly, um, I I got to know him from several angles. Um, I, you know, I had the luxury of writing about a living subject, so I could test. The conclusions I was drawing from the documents against his own recollections yeah. and interpretations, but of course that's a that's a dicey business as well because sure. as we know the human memory is not not necessarily very reliable, and, right. and I couldn't necessarily treat his own account as as a, a an always valid correction on my own interpretations. Yeah. So I simply tried to cross-check as much as possible and account for any discrepancies, and be very forthright about my own perspective. And at the encouragement of my editor, I ended up writing about a third of that book in the first person, reflecting about my own experiences with Charlie, my changing view of him, and my experience in the classroom, and observing him uh, teaching in other contexts, to make it clear to the reader that this was kind of an unusual situation, and and really all the more interesting for its unique features.
2: I I think... That you know, a bridge between that early, really extraordinary project and the one that you've just come up with uh, with this new book, is that you you are sensitive to the fact that uh, the people you write about, the evangelicals you write about, um, you don't caricature them, you don't try to put them into uh, boxes that people already uh, want them to fit into. I mean, there's, there's this real sense as I as I read through the book of. Um, of an arc to the overall story, to arcs within people's lives, to arcs within movements. Uh, it's, it's really very well done. And I, I, have a, I have a sense that it's because of this early experience that you are able to be sensitive to the way that, that people live their lives through ideas that they truly believe in, which I, I don't think all historians are able to do uh, all that well. And I think you do a really nice job um, with that. So maybe you could talk now a bit about... Some of the people who you found fascinating when looking back at 70 years of American evangelical history and, and why you picked out particular people as sort of representative figures or that were particularly uh, interesting to you as you went through this, this history.
1: Well, thanks very much. That's very generous of you. Uh, I, I do think, I mean, maybe I maybe I fall into the other uh, hazard of taking ideas too seriously sometimes. But certainly, I, I think that all human beings, whether they are particularly educated or not, whether right. they're they're very articulate in the way right. we we normally expect or not, they're they're all creatures of ideas. Mm-hmm. And and also, uh, you know, a point I always make to my students is that there's not a straight line between theology or ideology and, and <laughs> lived experience. So the, the, the two constant change and inform one another in this very complicated dialectic, but I did find that that the most interesting way to to tell uh, the story of, frankly, sometimes quite abstract ideas, is to focus on characters and real human beings as much as possible. Early on, I got very interested in, in a figure who's, who's fairly well known to historians of evangelicalism, and, and that's Carl Henry, mm-hmm. who was one of the founding uh, he was the founding editor-in-chief of the magazine Christianity Today and really, I think, that the leader and in, in the this intellectual vanguard of, of self- described neo-evangelicals who wanted to bring conservative Protestantism out of the fundamentalist wilderness and back into conversation with mainstream intellectual life. Right. And I found him compelling because, well, he, I, I had fairly rich access to his his interior life. I think through the records of, of Christianity Today magazine, okay. and I, I admired his his uh, ambition and his vision for, uh, for the institutions he was building, not just Christianity today, but also Fuller Theological Seminary, the Evangelical Theological Society, various evangelistic projects he was involved in abroad, uh, and, and his uh, conviction that spiritual revival was inseparable from intellectual revival. His story also helped me trace the genealogy of this particular strand of evangelicalism that I argue in the book became influential out of all proportion to its numerical representation among conservative Protestants in America, and that is this, this sort of post-fundamentalist, reformed, heavily reformed expression of Protestantism that Carl Henry uh, encountered in his education, um, starting at, at Wheaton College and, and, uh, and further on, um, in, engaging with a particular school of, of uh, really, epistemology that taught him to focus on the presuppositions the assumptions that underlie a person's worldview and their um, their importance in framing all argument yeah. and his and his colleagues ability to um, to, to package this this uh, theory of epistemology and really broadcast it through the institutions they found um, is crucial for what I call the the really intellectual backstory of the rise of the Christian right. At the same time, he was a very human... Flawed guy, and right. I, I came across correspondence among his colleagues complaining about him, right. complaining about the size of his ego, uh, yeah. how he was always putting his own career in front of the magazine, and and you know, reading his own memoirs, I was fascinated by his uh, encounters with with Carl Bart and yes. his simultaneous pride and insecurity, and he just he came off the page for me. Another figure that I I, I really set out to capture quite early um, in my research was John Howard Yoder.
2: Yeah, I. I I'm to talk to you about that too. Yeah. He's fascinating. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, he's probably the the most uh, prominent Mennonite, um, American Mennonite theologian of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. I would say, and was someone who who was in conversation with Carl Henry as a young man. Yoder was a bit younger, I think about a a decade or more younger than than Henry. And we don't uh, commonly think of Mennonites uh, as um, evangelicals, and Mennonites themselves often reject that term. They're typically not corralled into, into that conversation, into most histories of evangelicalism. But I very much wanted to include them because I, I do see um, Mennonites as in the same conversation, as um, the more the self-appointed mainstream of evangelicalism represented by people like Billy Graham and Carl Henry. And Yoder is a great example. Yoder is someone who uh, grew up in an established Mennonite community in Ohio, was trained in all Mennonite institutions until he, he went to Europe for his studies, but uh, took up a correspondence, began a correspondence with Carl Henry, while he was a graduate student <laughs> in, in Europe. Yeah. And in kind of contesting uh, Henry's assumptions about um, the, the need to define uh, Protestant orthodoxy in terms of rationalistic truth claims right. and really pushing back against Henry's Fundamentalist hangover, we might say. Yeah, pretty bold. Hitler always used the the um, first person plural. He yeah. always said, "We, we yeah. need to consider this. We need to look at this history and consider the limitations of the fundamentals for today's problems." And he very much thought of himself. As I think an evangelical, but also as a witness yes. to other evangelicals, yes. as someone who uh, whose burden it was to to represent the the Anabaptist tradition, the peace witness, and the Anabaptist view of of matters like biblical inspiration, yeah. which had a lot to offer, I think, uh, in in the context of the the confrontation between Protestant traditional Protestant orthodoxy and modernity.
2: Well, I was going to say, I mean, one of the things that Yoder seems to be able to do for you in this book is to bring together the sort of um, the idea that I, while ideas are are important uh, it's, it's, there isn 't one way to sort of get at them or to uh, make arguments that are convincing that there has to be something sort of uh, flesh and blood behind them, something somebody willing to take almost irrational action to show uh, their, their undeterred faith in the ideas uh, that they're, that they 're putting out there. And that it's it it doesn't depend on the rest of the intellectual world to accept them for them to be right to you. And, and Yoder seemed to be sort of this voice in the wilderness at times, uh, but he is he is somebody that you follow all throughout the book. And in some ways, he becomes more prominent, um, certainly near the end of his life, uh, even after, right? Because of uh,
1: I think that's right. Yeah. He models. Um, he, he certainly has come to model for young evangelicals a, a countercultural yeah. Christian alternative, a, a way of being Christian that is not Jerry Falwell or right. the Moral Majority, but also and, not liberal
2: know, in that way, not Niebuhr, that, not you know sort of the mainstream um, New Republic Nation, uh, uh, you know, uh, argument about whatever anti-war or pro-poor uh, people, something like that. This is a, this is a different. This is the third way, an alternative to all this.
1: That's right. His book, uh, The Politics of Jesus, has remained in print and remained, I mean, for uh, for a a work of Protestant scholarship, really, uh, you know, a a mini-bestseller for decades since it was published in the early 70s for just that reason. And uh, you're right that that Yoder did not have the same, uh, I think, insecurity and, and deep anxiety for, for approval and inclusion um, by the mainstream that that Henry had but on the other hand the you know he was coming out of a- that while it had had its struggles with with fundamentalism, uh, perhaps had had always retained a closer connection uh, to to its roots. And certainly, you know, uh, coming out of the Anabaptist tradition, uh, Yoder Yoder had less anxiety about you know being part of the conversation in in the lofty reaches of German theology uh, mm-hmm. that um, that someone like Carl Henry would have had. Um, but you're right. You know, he's he's being he's been rediscovered, and uh, his appeal has broadened precisely because he had the relationship between ideas and culture.
2: Yeah. Okay, so we get back to Carl Henry. Can you tell us a little bit about how Henry becomes, uh, what, or what, at least what he imagines he wants to become in terms of um, American religious, either intellectuals or American religious leaders? Uh, because he seems to play off against Billy Graham, who, I have to say, it's, it's really interesting in your book where Graham fits in, because if you're writing a book, you're telling somebody you're writing a book about American evangelicals, Graham would be front and center in almost every chapter. But that's not the case in your book, which I found really well done. So can you tell us a little bit more about Henry and his relationship to Graham? <laughs>
1: You're you're right. I think that Graham has become this shorthand yeah. for all of American evangelicals, um, and and certainly he he is the main figurehead of this this self-appointed cadre of of right. neo-evangelicals who really seek to represent evangelicalism um, to the world, to both the the towers of political power but also um, intellectual circles Henry's interests were from the beginning I think more intellectual uh, Henry was very committed to evangelism and involved in some of the big evangelistic uh, conferences that um, that Graham was also part of and in Berlin in 1966 for example and certainly the massive Lausanne conference in 1974 um, but these uh, these were as much ecumenical evangelical ecumenical projects as they were about evangelism. They were not crusades in the sense that we associate with Billy Graham. I think Henry, um, Henry and Graham uh, had much in common, and uh, certainly I don't believe that, that Graham disapproved of anything that Henry was up to. It was simply that Henry saw uh the the mission to convert the world to Christ as uh, as connected inextricably to a, a project about reforming intellectual culture and reasserting yeah. Yeah. the the ideas of conservative protestant dogma uh to really the center uh, um of of at least conversation um, in, in American intellectual circles. And he believed he believed stridently in the in the power of of theology to, to shape culture. Um, and and his gifts simply lay lay elsewhere. So if you want to get at the story of, of how it is that we arrive at in the late nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties and we have this ascendant Christian right um, that you know represents a certain political platform to really understand where that comes from, you have to dig underneath that right. and uncover the intellectual foundations and the theology that perhaps is unstated but informs that agenda. And to find, to trace the genealogy of that, it's really Henry's story that reveals it rather than Billy Graham's.
2: So I to do. It just so we don't get too far ahead in this before I, I get you to define sort of the central conflict of the book could you do you tell me what that what that is how did henry identify a conflict that graham maybe he didn't care quite as much about because he, he saw his work in sort of missionary work but henry saw a different type of conflict that he had to be attentive to in american intellectual life how, how would you describe that
1: well I, I would say that um both Graham and Henry were concerned with the authority of the Bible over modern life. Okay. Um and certainly Graham was part of the founding of Christianity today, for example, and most of the other organizations that, that I mentioned in connection with Henry. But but yes, you're you're right in that um Henry saw his battlefields a little bit differently and and i think in the in the context of the cold war mm-hmm. age of ideology in which every every intellectual seemed to have an ism to explain the world to account for the course of history to explain the tremendous Suffering uh, and and human um, human evil really that the 20th century had witnessed by yeah. the time of the mid 1950s, Henry saw the need for a conservative Protestantism, a yeah. an all encompassing worldview that would stand up to the the threats of of um, modern secular ideology and could offer the same compelling explanations that 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 Marxism could or um, that, he, that he felt, you know, secular liberals were offering, although, although they were um, less ideological and, in his view, I think, uh, far more inconsistent. Right. And that was really his project. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think there's something here that I, I sometimes see in um, debates among Catholics at this time is that there's a relationship – that the that, that different uh, Christian churches have to the state or to the nation or to the sort of mythic understanding of America. It's certainly the imperative changes because of the Cold War. But they sort of reserve that they are independent of the state, of the nation, of America, because they see this ideological conflict being much bigger and having a much a sort of longer history. Uh, would you agree that that's how – Henry saw things in, in some sense that he, I mean, because Graham was more, it seems that Graham became more, more political, more centered uh, in the nation, and Henry didn't.
1: I think there there's something to that. Uh, it, it partly has to do with uh, access and yeah. you know, the the the, uh, the obvious um, influence that that Graham was perceived to have because he was on television all the time and he yeah. was hosting these crusades, you know, and reaching millions of people. Um, it, it was it, it was obvious to people in Washington that, that he had an audience. I think in a way that they they didn't they didn't view Henry um, in the same way. I mean, most folks in the White House probably were. You You know, if they knew Henry's name at all, it was only in the vaguest, most passing way. Right. But I think you you are, you are hit on something correct, and I think this is where George Marsden's right. um, insight from, you know, 30 years ago is, yep. is bang on in his book about fundamentalism, which is that fundamentalists, and Henry was, you know, a recovering fundamentalist. Yep. He, he remained a fundamentalist in so many ways. Um, they, they see themselves as, as simultaneously insiders and outsiders, right. as the loyal uh, core of, of the civilization, as well as the alienation um, you know, sojourner who who is never at home in his own culture, and and that you know that tension in um, self understanding persists. I think in in Henry's own um, understanding of, of America through you know through the the last half of the twentieth century and his attempts to to reposition conservative Protestantism.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I bring this up is because I I, I see this sort of Theme running throughout your book that, um, and as a question I had, when uh, evangelicals are trying to create or cultivate new generations uh, of evangelicals, are they going to do it by saying this is you know, this is for the the benefit of the country? You can be uh, you can find power through um, being trained to go to go out and and uh, to march against abortion, or is it that you can be? You can stand on sort of uh an, an intellectual tradition that dates back to uh for christians the single most important moment in world history and that alone is enough to make young evangelicals say I, you know i have a purpose in this world this is something that i need to dedicate my life to but these are two i, I think fairly different um, draws or fairly different imperatives you know one is seems to be political and it's the one that we often see when uh, when people talk about the religious right, and the other side, you see it as an imperative that has a much sort of longer history and that cuts across um, the different types of evangelicals in the United States. Does that sound about right?
1: That's that's very perceptive. I I think that uh, evangelicals have always been motivated by a call to change the world. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that people misunderstand about the Christian right when they cast the Christian right as this departure from an earlier history in which evangelicals and fundamentalists were all quietists who had no interest mm-hmm. in affecting their, their surrounding society and, and were simply you know waiting patiently for Jesus' second coming. Because right. if you look at the history, you see that there is a lot of continuity between mm-hmm. the, the great moral reform movements that emerged out of the Second Great Awakening and the the anti-communism and, and um, you know anti-union um, agitation uh, that we that we see someone like Dwight Moody involved in yeah. um, you know even after the, the supposed uh, turn away from the world that yeah. um, it so often features in the potted history of fundamentalism right. someone like Carl McIntyre the fundamentalist you know to end all fundamentalists right. while he was endlessly critical of Billy Graham's collaboration with Roman Catholics in organizing his Crusades himself collaborated with Catholics in hosting anti-communist rallies <laughs> right right uh, and you know so he pre, he uh, you know anticipates the moral majority by decades Absolutely. doing this in the yeah. 40s and 50s yeah. um, and and I, I do think too that um, you can see some some impulse uh, in this regard this this sense that Christianity is a is a calling to to be Christian in the world it's not just something that you do on Sundays really across the spectrum of evangelicalism from Mennonites to Pentecostals to one degree or another But your second point about the degree to which evangelicalism uh, is aware of its own history and um you know like like catholics uh sees to to root its young in a, an inherited tradition
0: mm-hmm.
1: um i think is a is a, a fraught one certainly in general evangelicals have for most of their history since the reformation been primitivists been decidedly ahistorical and rather uninterested in the time uh, between you know the apostolic era mm-hmm. and the founding of their own particular church, and see themselves as um, living and worshiping as Christ and his apostles did, uh, and are decidedly uh, resistant to the notion that they are historical creatures formed <laughs> right. by right. centuries of history and their own surroundings, and uh, whether they like it or not. But of course they are, as all humans are. And what I saw as I traced um, this contest over authority over the course of the past 70 years, is that in some ways, um, evangelicals reached a point of exhaustion, hmm. simply fighting over the Bible via proof right. text, right. and began to appeal to history, history and began to seek yeah authority by asserting rival genealogies. I mean, you see this in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, mm-hmm. as conservatives in that convention began to uh, to claim that this broad-tent denomination that had historically uh, been home to many different expressions of Baptist piety, reigning, ranging from very Arminian and revivalist to more cerebral and reformed, was actually a tradition in which there was one particular authentic way of being Southern Baptist, and that was essentially a reformed and, and deeply conservative, if not fundamentalist, way of being Southern Baptist. And in response to this, uh, moderates asserted a different genealogy and claimed that you know they were they were the authentic uh, Southern Baptists, and the conservatives were revisionists. Right. And you can see versions of this also among the Lutherans, among the Pentecostals, all all playing out really um, in the 70s and 80s. Although it's part of a broader story, and today we're seeing, you know, the next chapter of it as some younger evangelicals uh, exasper- ex- exasperated with <laughs> their parents' Christian right, eager to right. find their own way to a Christian identity, are rediscovering um, other p- parts, other strands of the evangelical heritage um, yeah. that perhaps they didn't grow up with, and are even reaching back further than that, and, uh, and trying to recover a connection to the early Church Fathers.
2: Yeah, I mean, this actually leads me to... Um An area that we're both familiar with, which is the role that universities, uh, you know, educational institutions play in sort of cultivating these questions, because without a doubt, one of the I think one of the best themes in the book uh, are those uh, parts you talk about Wheaton College or other universities, other Christian universities. I just find it fascinating uh, to go through the machinations of the newspapers that that uh, these uh, these colleges and universities promoted, uh, or the, the professors that came in and out of uh, the classrooms there, can you talk a little bit about the the fundamental role that these institutions play in the story?
1: Yeah, yes, the higher education had to be a. a, a the sphere that I engaged with at length, because it's really where so many of, of these questions play out mm-hmm. in an explicit way, and of course, evangelical higher education is very diverse, and yeah. I, you know, I try to give some sense of that by treating the Bible colleges as well as places like Wheaton, Absolutely. who which has a very different history. Um, but I found that these these institutions and the educators and administrators who ran them found themselves in very tight spots often, uh, particularly yeah. in the wake of World War II as the world of American higher education was, was changing rapidly. We know we have this influx of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of new students, many of whom funded by the GI Bill, um, with very different goals and ambitions than perhaps uh, the students who'd come to these institutions in earlier uh, decades had had, and uh, financial pressure, frankly, uh, to really renegotiate the institution's relationship with the mainstream and right. become competitive, rethink questions like accreditation. While still balancing uh, the, the institution's responsibilities to the, the expectations of parents and alumni, who often sent their kids to these to these schools so that they would be protected from the sins of the world, That's right. uh, and I was, you know, struck by um, uh, the administrators at fundamentalist Bible colleges railing on the likes of Carl Henry. Mm-hmm. as really barely orthodox in their <laughs> letters, but in practice facing many of the same quandaries right. as as Carl Henry and the neo-evangelicals did. Wheaton, in many ways, was uh, was ahead of the, of the the fundamentalist curve on these questions, yeah. and to some fundamentalist educators, a warning of what might happen if you let the liberal arts have too much sway. Yeah. I, I became totally uh, fascinated by you know these back issues of the Wheaton Record, the student yeah. newspaper, or the literary magazine, and I. Did have to keep reminding myself that anyone who you know who's on any university campus today knows that the yeah. newspaper or certainly the lit mag doesn't speak for all students and is <laughs> <Definitely> often <not. laughs> you know often dominated by a kind of self-regarding vanguard yep. you know that yep. that is perhaps a little more radical than the norm. Sure. Um, but nonetheless, I think that, that they did a, they they were at a useful um, you know barometer of change, and I, I I traced you know the headlines and the content from the '40s um, when the Wheaton Record was full of you know devotional right. material and rather parochial exactly. and really didn't yeah. see itself as a news outlet. You know, into into the more uh, experimental fifties when. Um, the the, lit, the lit mag really yeah. starts to to come into being, and uh, and the editors of the record begin seeing themselves as, as serious, um, you know, reporters and yeah. uh, curators of news. Um, you know, to the the 70s when when really, um, in in many ways, the the Wheaton Record was a a, a forum for for fairly, for pushing the envelope in many ways. Yeah. One, perhaps my favorite story that I stumbled upon in the Wheaton archives is the story of Wesley Earl Craven, <laughs> who, you know, <laughs> your great. listeners may not may not know that, that the, you know, the the force behind The Nightmare on Elm Street and right. Stream Films is himself a Wheaton College graduate. Great. That's great stuff. And he had a, um, a very dark, uh, you know... Mm-hmm sort of offbeat sensibility, even as a college student. Mm-hmm. And um, I read some of his college short stories, and they are they are not your typical Christian fare. <laughs> they deal with you know, uh, soldiers' experiences in wars and death and morally ambiguous um, situations. And yeah. he became editor of the literary magazine and announced very boldly, I mean, this is in, I want uh, to say, 62, to readers that times were changing, that he was really, you know, thumbing his nose at the Wheaton establishment and he was going to publish stories that really forced readers to, to think about hard questions and indeed did so um, and uh, received a flurry of, of hate mail. But uh, the, the Wheaton record editors came to his aid and, and gave him a forum to defend himself against his critics. But finally, after observing this and interfering far less than some of their colleagues would, uh, the Wheaton administration did step in and, and yanked him from the masthead and um, forced forced the literary magazine back into a more predictable, traditional vein. Um, But, you know, Craven's story was perhaps an exaggerated example of um, a way in which this this subculture of, of the student writers on these campuses were not always in lockstep, certainly, with, right. their, um, with their administrators. And in some cases, they had, they had professors who, who were eager, usually in much exactly. less controversial, right. much less explicit ways, to encourage them to ask
2: questions. Exactly. That, that seems so interesting to me because I think this is where, uh, if, if I could bring up the, the sort of the topic, the intersection between religious history, biography, and intellectual history, where I saw it playing out in some interesting ways. Um, because clearly someone like Wes Craven is a product of some time, of some types of ideas that are being developed in a particular type of institution in an era in which the United States itself is changing rather radically. So could you talk a little bit about how you approached the idea? I mean, were you conscious that you were doing both uh, types of history, religious and intellectual, and uh, – did it matter if you're conscious of that?
1: I think I you know I was pondering this question um, and i I'm hard pressed. To come up with an example of religious history that is not also not intellectual, intellectual history. history. Right. And I think one of the exciting things about this field right now is mm. that, uh, it, you know, it, it, the boundaries have really broken down. Yeah. And we are seeing so much creative history uh, coming forward because no one does intellectual history anymore without also doing something we might like also call cultural history yeah. or, yeah. you know, simply casting a broader net. And uh, while I would say most of my subjects are elites uh, uh, because, yeah. because I, I was interested in the story of of institutions right. um, and and these these kind of thought leaders. I I did try to. Um, Push the the stories, follow the stories of, of some of these ideas into into the wider sphere, and right. and talk about um, the, the, some of the great global spiritual renewal movements yep. of the 20th century, like the charismatic renewal movement right. and the liturgical exactly. renewal movement, yep. which are not typically included church growth in the in the mission field, not yep. typically treated uh, in a maybe a, a standard history, you know, theological history of no, evangelicalism be, and the right. 20th century, but I. But to me, it's all of a piece, and you know, this has been my my main. Um concerned with with much of the current scholarship on the history of the Christian right and that is that it's a story uh, so often told as a purely a political story right. one of about backlash against the uh, liberation movements of the 60s or a continuation of anti-communism or simply a story of, of knee-jerk racism and prejudice yep. and all of those things certainly are, play a play a role in this in the story but to me it, it's also a, a story about ideas and yep. you can't understand Catholic Catholic and evangelical co belligerence, unless you look, you consider the Charismatic Renewal Movement, you consider changes in liturgy and the the, the theological and spiritual detente between <laughs> Protestants and Catholics that precedes moral majority.
2: Yeah, and, and what is it over? What, what do they agree on?
1: Well, I think they come to see one another as authentic Christians mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's one of the most profound changes that happens and certainly I don't want to exaggerate uh, the degree to which um, you know old old prejudices no, that's right and, you're, and you're sensitive to
2: that yeah that's true because of that. course
1: yeah they continue to this day but uh, yeah. in the course of the charismatic renewal movement this right. global Pentecostal uh, re- revival that it's hard to date it but probably be- we can say it began in the late 50s and began to taper off in the mid. 70s, this swept both Protestant and Catholic communities, which had historically really considered tongues and prophecy and healings to be, you know, something confined to apostolic times and and, um, blasphemous, or at least deeply, deeply questionable in our current time. But here, uh, these Protestants and Catholics were seeing these phenomena with their own communities, and in, in many cases began to worship side by side at, yeah. at massive charismatic conferences. I found records indicating that, you know, the, the Catholic uh, charismatic organization based at Notre Dame was funding um, Protestant um, Protestant charismatic uh, meetings and, and other endeavors, and yeah, there was really quite a lot of collaboration. You start to see these uh, neo-charismatic churches pop up that were attracting worshipers from both worlds. Yeah. And I think the simple experience of worshiping side-by-side side changes your view of someone you, you used to think was a disciple of the whore of Babylon, mm, right? Absolutely. And like... Likewise, uh, I, you know, if you trace the institutional relationship of um, evangelical intellectuals and yeah. Catholic higher education, right. you see that there's this long history, really going back at least to the 40s, if not earlier, mm-hmm. of even some of the most recalcitrant, um, fundamentalist evangelical intellectuals grudgingly expressing <laughs> admiration for the Catholic tradition of natural law right. and the Catholic yep. ability to systematically rebut some of the challenges of secular modernity, and that admiration becomes quite explicit in the uh, 80s and 90s, as increasingly evangelical scholars um, and other intellectuals um, turn to Catholic institutions like Notre Dame, for example, Uh, for support and funding, and you know, flock to people like Robbie George at Princeton, who has loads of evangelical Evangelical acolytes and all of that is is connected to the political cooperation that is a more familiar part
2: of the story. I mean it's fascinating that you're linking up sort of the the, uh, the role that, which I don't think I ever ever understood quite the pivotal role that Notre Dame plays in this history from the 50s basically on or or, or pew um Right. the money that Pew gives to uh, young evangelicals, but also I think Notre Dame gets a lot of that money uh, because of the program there. Um, right. uh, but then the charismatic movement, which <laughs> on the face of it, I wouldn't think would have anything to say about the type of authority that you're talking about in the book. And yet you link the two things up quite nicely. Um, I mean, can, what is that link? Why does Robbie George, someone who can speak to, in a sense, the people who are inspired by the charismatic movement,
1: well, I, yeah, I think that it's, um, it's it's sometimes hard to to grasp the uh, the, the smoking. It's hard to find the smoking gun sometimes that that proves the presence of certain ideas or, or you know causation rather than correlation. And I think many of the factors that I trace are kind of these ambient changes right. in okay. evangelical. Culture um, and you know, rather than sort of one-to-one you know causations, um, but I think that the the connection is that the charismatic renewal movement did in this global way. transform Protestant-Catholic relations. And of course, you know, the the changes in the Catholic Church um, in the wake of Vatican II are crucial to this, and Vatican II explicitly paved the way for increased collaboration between Catholics and evangelicals in things like Bible translation for missions, for example. Um, So, you know, there's changes happening. It's not as if the Catholics are static at this time. But certainly, a a young evangelical growing up in, you know, your typical... um, suburban evangelical megachurch Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s would have grown up with a different idea of Catholicism than, you know, his parents' generation did. And, you know, when he gets to college and he's looking for mentors, he would be more likely to to see someone like Robbie George as a a powerful guide and an ally rather than an agent of this hostile, Mm -hmm. you know, non-Christian... Church.
0: Um,
1: And so, you know, he, and and that, uh, and his worship experience, uh, more likely than not, would have been shaped by a kind of soft charismatic spirituality that has pervaded evangelicalism. And frankly, you see it, you encounter it in the liberal mainline, too, uh, to some degree. You encounter, you know, not um, uh, loud, aggressive, you know, speaking in tongues or rolling in the aisle, Mm -hmm. but rather a domesticated charismatic spirituality, in which people often have their hands in the air, and they're speaking quietly to themselves and uh, you know I think you don't you're less likely to see the soft tongues in a, in a Catholic worship, certainly, but you will see the hands in the air right. uh, you will see some some physical echoes of of the same um, uh, spiritual expression, and this would not have been true you know twenty thirty forty years ago
2: right uh, you know, there is. There, there are some lines in your book that are so strong uh, and that and, uh, you state things so clearly that I wanted to uh, ask you a bit about them. There's a chapter on the gospel of, of liberation, which takes up the, the new evangelical left, which I think, as you know, until fairly recently, very few people really wrote about. Um, but one of the things that I found interesting about the book is just the idea of the different varieties of evangelical. And uh, if... if This book does nothing else. It is going to introduce a completely new sort of way of talking, to to talk about or to to consider evangelicals in America. But you say uh, something on page 197 about the new evangelical left. They were not interested in professing loyalty to any particular church tradition so much as conjuring an ideal and therefore imaginary image of the church as Jesus must have intended it. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, this idea of the imagination, which is – for me, it's, it's such a uh, – it's, it's elastic, but it's evocative. And uh, I think the last section of your book, a lot of it has to do with this idea of imagining, imagining new ways to, uh, to work uh, across you know, sort of ecumenically, new ways to imagine the world, new ways to imagine uh, America. Can you talk a bit about that, about the role of imagination sort of post-1960s?
1: Absolutely, uh, boy! You've re- you read my book more carefully than uh, I think anyone else has asked questions <laughs> about it. It's wonderful. Uh, well, I think you know you're, you're, you're the first quotation you mentioned about the evangelical left. Um, you know that's that's in the context of my my effort to to not portray. Progressive evangelicals as the flawless heroes who are exempt <laughs> from all the critiques yeah. I levy against the right. more conservative evangelicals. Yep. I see them all as really um, wrestling with some of the same tensions that come out of this. This crisis of authority that i think has defined the movement for right. centuries. I suppose my my use of the term the evangelical imagination is in part an effort to find a workable alternative to the term the evangelical mind.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. Which is
1: certainly a, a neater term and yeah. you know it's one that's featured in the in the literature recently and of course my my book is talking in some ways to Mark Knowles the right. scandal of the evangelical mind mm-hmm. um, which made such huge waves of uh, among evangelical uh, educators in particular, and I think was at one point required reading at Wheaton, if it is not still. But of course, the term, the evangelical mind, while it is seductive, it has a nice ring, it implies this unity of purpose, of cognitive process, that is simply not reflected in reality. And I suppose I liked the term imagination, because it is more elastic because yeah. the, the the concept of imagination is really what makes us human and mm-hmm. it it expresses the the human project of Using ideas of absorbing ideas to transport ourselves somewhere else to to um, conjure a vision of of what we might be, or to put ourselves in a position other than our own, and I think we are uh, this is you know one of the things uh, the, the main thing that separates us from other animals is our ability to think abstractly. In this way, not that other uh, creatures aren't capable of empathy, but I think there's this there's this abstract quality to to imagination that that makes it human, yeah. and it, it's also a more dynamic word. It is it is unsettled. It evolves. Yeah, um, right. It responds to different different um, experiences and resources. And there's room for internal conflict and contradiction, uh, which to me is the main theme of evangelical yeah. history, rather than unity.
2: I think it's it's really amazing. Ambitious to set yourself up in that way to, to spend at least I would say three chapters on this idea. I, I, you know, I find those three chapters I'll, I'll definitely assign them to some of my students uh, when I do uh, American cultural criticism because I think oh, it's great. yeah some of the best stuff I've read about sort of recent American history and uh, and and the figure who comes through who I've always been fascinated by uh, in some of these chapters is Francis Schaeffer who mm. I think Noel, uh, Noel was quite influenced by Schaeffer if I'm not. Uh, not wrong about that, if I'm not mistaken. But can you talk a bit about Francis Schaeffer and the role that he plays in some of this, in the creation of, in some ways, this, this um, paradoxical imagination?
1: Schaefer is someone whose name I think was not not particularly well known up until a few years ago. Although now he's finally getting his due as one of the architects, no. the intellectual architects of the Christian Right. He began his career as a Christian, uh, as a fundamentalist Presbyterian, right. and, and went off as a as a missionary to post-war Europe with his family. Uh, and you know, as many people now now know, he accidentally, more or less, ended up founding this unconventional uh, ministry called Le Brie. French for refuge in the Swiss Alps after his daughter began bringing home classmates who had questions about faith and the world and all these things, and he uh, was forced to, um, you know, loosen some of his separatist fundamentalist notions about mm-hmm. interacting with with the wider world, as increasingly, you know, bohemian backpackers and, you know, British drug addicts and <laughs> evangelical college kids right. who are out to see the world and ask questions, began spending the night in, in his home and asking these questions, and he became really a student of Western culture, yeah. um, tutored in large part by Hans Ruckmacher, who was a Dutch Reformed art historian, and began in the early 60s uh, a series of really national speaking tours to evangelical audiences in America... And by this point, he understood himself as a cultural prophet whose calling it was to convince American evangelicals of their role in saving Western civilization. And he, he was a you know, an unconventional orator. He had a kind of unpleasant nasal voice. His self-presentation was unusual. He was famous for wearing his <laughs> right. knickers and, right. and Swiss knee socks. Uh-huh. Um, but he, he offered this compelling narrative of really the decline of Western civilization, so roughly the era of Thomas Aquinas, who, according to Schaefer, mistakenly elevated the authority of human reason over the Bible, and cascading on down, and you know, a kind of welter of war and misguided Renaissance philosophy, offering uh, potted summaries of you know Leonardo da Vinci and you know Kierkegaard along the way down across this this uh, terrible chasm that he called the line of despair, uh, <laughs> in past which the the, the Western civilization descended into our current uh, state of, you know, bewildering and vulgar art and the rise of, of um, anti-Christian, you know, secular humanism and the general degradation of of mores and order. Yeah. And he concluded with a kind of call to... To self-awareness, to evangelicals, to really see themselves as charged with saving Western heritage at a time when uh, thinkers on the left were abandoning the West in droves, were were stripping, um, you know, curricular requirements uh, in in Western in the Western canon from university course catalogs, and were uh, associating, you know, the Western tradition with cultural imperialism. On top of this, Schaefer could breezily offer these. These brief, confident summaries of, you know, Picasso and Camus, and, you know, give mm-hmm. you in a few sentences a summary that left you convinced that, that you, as, you know, uh, an evangelical who'd been made to believe you were an unschooled rude, right. a bumpkin on the outside of, of a serious intellectual life, could understand these things. Yeah. Yeah. He was not all that political, really, initially, but was radicalized by Roe versus Wade, because he saw abortion as the nadir that he had so long predicted, and he deserves a lot of the credit for mobilizing evangelicals to take action against legal abortion at a time when it was mainly a Catholic issue, and he did so by appealing to ideas and history, and convincing evangelicals that they were part of this centuries-long story.
2: I was going to say, whether or not his history was correct or even complicated, or sophisticated in any way, he, he, he does create this sort of imaginary past for uh, evangelicals to completely buy into. Uh, which That's is right. Impressive.
1: I mean, I, I, I compare him to, uh, to Oswald Spengler.
2: Uh, right. <laughs> you know, in,
1: in, in Spengler's ability to explain the, the great cultural and political tragedy of World War I to yeah. Germans. Yeah. I mean, Schaefer is doing something similar. He's yeah. explaining to evangelicals how America of the 60s and 70s became so screwed up in yeah. their view.
2: Yeah, so this is, I mean, this leads us to maybe the final question for you is is um, so much that has been written about evangelicals or the Christian right starts with um, the categories defined by the culture wars. And you get to to this particular period, of course, at the end of your book, and it, it doesn't dictate <laughs> how you look at evangelicals. Um, I mean, can you give us an idea of, of how we should think about the culture wars uh, in relation to evangelicals and maybe in relation to Uh, The fights over the the fights within Christianity in general.
1: I think the culture wars are a product of a and the outcome of a particular culture war within evangelicalism. The the victory, the victory of one particular Strand of evangelical Protestantism over others in in the public face of evangelicalism and in the, the the shaping of the political platform of many of the most influential organizations associated with the Christian right. Yeah. Um, the reason why the culture wars can be a limiting framework is because it encourages us to take that one strand of evangelicalism for the whole. Right. And so the story I try to tell is one of of both how that happened, how, how this particular largely Reformed intellectual tradition came to exercise such outsized power, but also the way in which other evangelicals have contested it, and how how they have worked to assert a different, a different heritage and a, a different argument for, for what constitutes uh, authentic expression of Christianity in culture and a, a Christian's role in politics.
2: That's great stuff, Molly. Uh, thank you so much for uh for speaking with us today because this is uh, it's a great book and um, I think that unlike uh, a lot of books out today this is uh, it's not just comprehensive but it has great character sketches and I think for uh, people who are looking for models of how to do this sort of integrated book of biography and intellectual history and and cultural history and religious history this is uh, is a really good example so thank you so much for speaking with us you've been listening to new books in intellectual history That was an interview with Molly Worthen, assistant professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and her new book, Apostles of Reason. I'm Ray Herbersky. Thank you for listening.